Hello and welcome to the Tea and Toast podcast, the bi-weekly podcast which focuses on mental health and wellness. On today's show, we have Josh Roberts, author of the book, Anxious Man, Notes on a Life Lived Nervously. Josh is a writer, broadcaster and public speaker who focuses on mental health, often speaking through his own journey and experience of generalised anxiety disorder. Not only has he published his first book, he has had countless guest writing appearances and interviews across the UK press, blogs and podcasts. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Josh about his own journey, how he began writing and some tips he can share with you lovely listeners who may also be experiencing your own battles and journey with mental health. We are recording. So hello, Josh. How are you? <laughs> Even though I've spoken to you like, <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I think that whilst I know yourself and your book, it'll be good to sort of kick off and introduce yourself and more about your book, The Anxious Man and what it's all about. Yeah, sure. So, well, firstly, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, like you said, we, we used to work together. <laughs> my name is Josh, Josh Roberts. I am 30 years old, depressingly enough. And uh, I'm the author of a, of a book called Anxious Man, Notes on a Life Lived Nervously, which came out in April this year, April 2020. And, um, well, it's a memoir, really. It's a book about uh, what it's like to... I suppose, go to bed as a fairly normal, uh, inverted commas, 25-year-old, and then to wake up the next morning to sort of discover that your mind has collapsed and what it's like to experience that, what it's like to um, go through that, how you go about getting better and various other bits and bobs along the way. Um, so, yeah, the book, book came out in April and uh, I've been sort of chatting about it ever since, really. So how did you first get into writing about your own experiences? I know that you've spoken previously about it's not a type of therapy, but something that you found really enjoyable. So how did you begin that journey of writing? I know you've done a couple of things for the Times. And how did that transcend into being an author of the book that you've produced? Yeah, so uh, my journey to authorship is uh, pretty weird and chaotic. (laughs) Um, I, I, I... did write things at university so I, I, I edited uh, the, the newspaper in, in university and things like that but never really harbored ambitions to be a journalist or a writer and what happened was when you or it used to be like this it's getting much better but when you're a, a bloke of a certain age and you have a mental health problem um, you very quickly discover that there is a sort of secret community of other blokes of your age who have similar problems and we sort of shuffle into pubs and send each other whatsapp messages and stuff <laughs> And one one of the people who I was um, chatting to who'd had a similar problem to me uh, was a journalist. And uh, and he suggested uh, writing about my experiences. So I pitched it to the Times newspaper. They very kindly ran an article where I sort of spoke about my experiences. And we just had the most incredible response from blokes, yes, but also from, you know, girlfriends and parents and, and all sorts of different people. And one of the people who'd read it and responded was a, was a publisher at Yellow Kite. And then, you know, the rest is history. I mean, well, it was about six months of back and forth. And then, and then finally we, we sort of agreed on a project and started writing it. So it was, um, it was a really kind of roundabout way. Lots of people asked me, you know, how do you, what tips do you have for getting a book deal? And I, 
<laughs> I, really don't, I really don't have any because, which I know is really unhelpful, but my own sort of journey towards it was so um, unpredictable and, and unplanned. I loved writing the book. It was great, great fun. Uh, lots of people, as you say, they tend to think, it, you know, I get asked a lot, oh, is it the cathartic process? Is it like therapy writing a book? And it's not really. Um, it's like writing. It's, and um, I suppose, you know, there are moments where you are kind of reliving things that have happened in the past, but mostly you're trying to work out how to put those things into a decent enough sentence that has a good mm -hmm. joke in them, you know, and all the rest yeah. of it. So it, I, it's not, it wasn't the therapeutic process that I think lots of people expect it to be. Yeah, it's so true. I can imagine that that's the first reaction for people putting pen to paper and talking through those experiences. I think it's amazing, mm. though. You got forwarded by Stephen Fry as well, which that in itself, I bet, was just mind-blowing, having that experience. Yes, yeah, St Stephen uh, very kindly wrote a really thoughtful and uh, you know, like eye-opening um uh, forward for the book he, he's just like an incredibly smart dude <laughs> yeah and um and you know took the subject and and wrote something really interesting so uh yeah even if i'm crap you've got steven's magic at the start of the book to, <laughs> to look forward to that alone should be enough reason to buy it <laughs> <laughs> well i think that what i found the most sort of eye-opening and i know that i've spoken to you about this before is that often when i read books it's very much sugar-coated the reality of anxiety and it was really refreshing to read a lot of the book and find it so relatable mm. i think that as well what would be really helpful for the listeners maybe is maybe a little bit more about how you sort of came to light with um realizing that you had generalized anxiety disorder and how you began starting those steps to recognize that but also begin your own journey into therapy yeah sure so for me it was very sudden and i've actually i've spoken to lots of people who have had similar experiences although i know that there are other routes to sort of having one of these problems i basically went to a party uh on a on a saturday night got quite drunk but not i wasn't wasn't you know you know crazy over the top or anything like that um and you know went to bed feeling fine woke up the next morning and i just woke up into this really savage panic attack um that just never went away <clears throat> it's sort of and i'd had a couple of panic attacks earlier on in my 20s but th this was very different in terms of the intensity of it but also the duration of it so the panic attacks i'd experienced previously would have lasted max like a minute whereas this one was uh, three or four hours of kind of constant panic and then when it sort of started to subside it didn't so much sort of subside as morph it went from being an immediate sort of fear of death and all of the kind of normal sensations of panic attack to just a kind of more well, generalised, more all-pervasive um, uh, worry, worry about worry, and and sort of feelings of guilt. So it took me. I went to A and E twice that day, and then went and saw two NHS GPs in the start across the start of the following week. It, so you know, it was two weeks later. I ended up the sort of NHS prognosis, which is and it's not their fault. So they're just not, or they weren't set up to um, to deal with problems like this was that it was a kind of hangover gone wrong and that with enough sleep and enough um you know cups of tea and whatever it would get better mm. and of course you know it didn't so eventually i ended up seeing a private doctor and he very quickly diagnosed me with uh, with generalized anxiety disorder 
and that was the sort of start for me of, of getting, well, I'd love to say it was the start of getting better. In reality, I spent a year bouncing around, sort of living partly in denial, um, and trying to cover up, you know, what was really going on with me and stuff like that. And it was that, that first year was really, really quite miserable. And then, and perhaps we'll touch on some of these things later, but, um, you know, made some not, not, not insignificant, but also not like crazy changes to my lifestyle and things started to improve quite radically uh, and quite quickly. For me, it was very sudden. I know for other people, it's, uh, you know, it's something that grows over time and, and, and things like that, or, you know, or, or similar to me, you know, they're in a car crash or uh, someone, in, you know, loved one dies or they get dumped or get fired or something. And that's what sort of kicks it off. And that was, def- that was definitely how it was for me. It was much more immediate. Mm-hmm. I totally understand what you mean in regards to the beginning where you do go to the NHS. And at that time, I think oh, I must have been about eight years or whatever. And it was at a stage where they weren't really equipped for it. So their common thing was similar to yourself. Just, it's okay, just have some sleep. Or at that, that stage, it was quite common to um, be given antidepressants. So it was just a quick sort of, to them, here you go, here's a quick fix. And I, similar to yourself, took a while to sort of process it and actually understand, okay, what what are the little things that I need to do to change that? And you speak as well about with therapy, it's about finding a driving instructor, how it's really personal to you. And it's so true. I've had about four different, through my own experience, four different counsellors that I thought at the time were helpful and then there were just some parts that didn't really click for me. And then when, when you do find that one, it makes such a difference and they are just yeah. small things that do need to change. I think it becomes really overwhelming for that. So what advice would you give? I know that um, there is sometimes um, a lot of patience that you have to have to find um, what's right for you, but um, some ways that people can sort of stay motivated and, and keep down that path of finding therapy because it can be quite difficult. Yes. So, so, so you're a hundred percent right. I think, and particularly Brits. So um, when I speak, uh, been promoting the book, done um, you know, interviews in America and, and podcasts in America, and the attitude there is very different towards therapy than, than it is in the UK. Here it's still seen slightly in terms of, you know, uh, thick carpets and modern art on the walls and, you know, ther- you know lying on a chaise long and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, and it's sort of the preserve of a kind of pretentious elite, if you will. <clears throat> Whereas in America, it's kind of much more... Um, uh, much more accepted part of your you know your your medical life in the same way that you have a dentist and a hairdresser and a doctor and maybe you know someone who helps you with your nails or something you might also have a therapist and as a result of that their attitudes towards chopping and changing and, and shopping around to find someone who really works for them um, you know that's a much more established culture whereas in the UK we tend to sort of stiff up a lip and stick mm-hmm. with whoever we we, we get first go with and that's a terrible thing to do because um, it completely undermines the the purpose of the of the process. So for me, for example, I had uh, I've actually never seen two different therapists, but the, the first guy, and again, this is quite a British attitude, is to equate cost with quality. So uh, he was a really expensive therapist, and I thought. My, my, my first reaction was get me the most expensive therapist that I can possibly afford because that will mean that they're the best. In reality, this guy, this guy, cause I was his least exciting uh, client. He would like forget my name or he oh would, 
well, he would call me Joshua, even though, you know, I correct him tons of times, you know, my name is Josh or something, you know, I could just tell that he was remembering our conversations from his notes rather than from remembering the conversations. And so after a while I, um, I binned him and found someone else who was like half the price, but for, and you know, I with whom I have nothing in common with, you know, I'm from sort of, you know, middle-class London and this guy's, uh, I don't know who described himself, you know, he's like work, working class lad from Burnley. So on paper, we don't have anything in common, but for some reason, the therapy process is much more, uh, you know, it's just, it just works. You ask about motivation and stuff, and the therapy that I've done is cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's obviously lots of different types of therapy. Um, CBT has been very powerful for me. It's a really important pillar of, um, of my recovery and ongoing sort of wellness. Um, one thing I would say is, but it, it, as you say, it's absolutely crucial to maintain momentum with it. So lots of people, blokes in particularly, we tend to want a quick fix. And so we want to, you know, turn up to three therapy sessions or whatever it is and then be cured. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't work like that. It takes, it's much more of a cumulative process. And you also, it's a very active process. So if, if the therapist tells you to do stuff, write things down, practice certain, you know, cognitive loops or, you know, leave stickers on the fridge or whatever it might be. You have to do that stuff. If you're not doing it and you're not doing it over a concerted period of time, it won't work. But if you do do it, I promise you, I mean, my experience, and it's not just me, um, CBT is as powerful as um, pharmaceutical interventions. So yeah, uh, therapy has been hugely powerful for me. Um, shop around and find someone who you, you don't have to have lots in common with, but who you sort of click with and then do what they tell you would be my sort of top tips, I think. You're so right about CBT is there's a lot of work that comes with it <laughs> so you have to be open to to taking that time with that and actually practicing those parts it's not just like you said a quick fix I think I've done it twice and the first time I did it I was very much I had the work and I was awful it was almost like homework I'd come in and she'd say so have you done your bits and I'd be rushing to do it on the train there and I was just like that's exactly why it didn't work the first time and yeah, yeah. second time I put a lot more time into it and you just have to be just you have to be aware of that that does come with it but it's also a massive positive because it puts things into practice so you can take those parts that you do learn in those sessions and you put them into a situation where you might feel uncomfortable but you actually see the positive parts and when you record um the situation log I always remember that in your mind you might have certain situations that you think certain thoughts might happen and then when you actually review it afterwards and writing those down is so eye-opening what you think mm. versus what actually happens. Do, do you know the, the only other thing I would say on, on, on therapy, because um, we're probably both speaking from a, a position of extreme privilege when it comes to this thing, mm -hmm. because of, you know, the employers that we have and, and where we live in the UK and stuff, have been able mm -hmm. to get hold of therapy, which depressingly um, isn't always available. The, no. the good thing about CBT, another good thing about CBT, I think, is, and this is why I describe it like learning to drive, is yeah it's obviously you know lots of people have lots of success having a real in-person driving instructor mm -hmm. and ultimately if you are going to go out on the roads obviously you need an instructor to come with you but you can learn a lot of it from watching videos from reading books mm -hmm. um and from listening to podcasts and things like that yeah and 
that's again the beauty of CBT is it's such a such a framework um, it's such a real sort of process that you don't necessarily have to be spending hundreds of pounds on therapists mm -hmm. in order to be able to start getting some of the benefits of it you can that's buy a book so or you can listen to a podcast or you can watch a video that's so true because um mine was actually through the NHS and I'd waited like six months and mm. it's only when I was waiting that I realized like you said there is a framework so you don't necessarily have to yeah you don't necessarily have to wait you can take matters into your own hands and you can research that and I think it's so true what you said about the podcast there's actually a lot more podcasts um out there than I realized and it's it's really helpful to see that and even like YouTube simple things like breathing exercises when it, which is so crazy to think like I even had to think how to breathe because I thought I, was like, I can't breathe so actually learning how to breathe was something that I found um really helpful on YouTube <laughs> the, the the thing with that is uh, and it's the challenge that we have when I go and talk at companies to you know promote the book but also to to sort of hopefully pass on some helpful tips and whatnot um the problem we have with a lot of mental health and kind of well-being and things like that is because it's all quite simple stuff mm. um you know breathing in the correct way or remembering to exercise or trying not to drink too much and trying to get enough sleep and yada yada, yada. it's all quite simple stuff but the, and it's free and as a result people don't tend to think of it as being important and therefore mm -hmm. don't do it and again it kind of just appeals to my psyche but i think there are lots of people like me who i said right i need i need to spend money fixing this problem that will if i the more money i spend fixing this problem the quicker it will be fixed mm -hmm. and the reality is it's just not like that you know the often the most powerful cures inverted commas are the ones that are free um or the ones that you can teach yourself i think the one part as well that I think is um, without sounding cliche is that when they say the best things in life are free, <laughs> it really is when it comes to you spoke about um, like love, for example, and your last chapter is something that I found so true. And it could be love through a pet or it could be love through friends and family and the support that you have. around yeah. you. And I think that that's something that is sometimes we, we can be so, well, speaking from my own personal thing is that when you do have some like anxiety, you can be quite insular with sometimes how you feel and you don't recognise that actually there's a lot of support that comes around you without realising it just comes as because they love you and they, they want to be with you for every step. And I think one of the things that um, you spoke about is opening up to Kelly about um, your anxiety and it does sometimes people feel quite vulnerable about that part. What's some advice that you would give to people that are listening that may hide parts from their partners or want to open up to people that it might even be someone that's new um, or somebody that they've yeah. been with for a long time. It may not necessarily be a partner, but it might be a family member to actually just say, okay, um, I, I do actually need your support now. And I've been hiding certain parts because I've just been conscious of that um, because it is quite difficult mm. to have those conversations yeah it, it is and people worry a lot about it um in, in my case i was i was lucky in a way because my condition was so bad that i didn't it wasn't an option not to talk about it it was kind of pretty obvious that something was wrong mm -hmm. um now of course over that the course like i mentioned of that first sort of year or so i was you know doing lots of kind of ob ob obfuscation and hiding and lots of you know stiff upper lipping and all that sort of stuff um, 
what's the advice so i think um as you as you say people do worry a lot about what it would mean for their personal relationships but also their their work and their career you know mm-hmm. you, you and i uh both <laughs> work in sales environments and you don't want to mark yourself out as being a problem child you don't want to be the person on the floor that the boss is thinking what a pain in the ass <laughs> so you know that's why people tend to keep quiet about it the thing i would say is so across the course of their lives 25% of people will experience a common mental health problem. So one in four uh, will either experience depression, um, anxiety, or obsessive compulsive disorder, elements of bipolar, whatever it might be. And what that means is that if each of those people who suffer from it know at least three people, right, then we can assume that 100% of the population will either have had the problem themselves or know intimately someone who has. Mm. What that means is that when you when you do come forward, when you do say, I, I've actually, you know, I've got a problem here, or I'm feeling lower for longer, or I'm, you know, I'm worrying in a way that I haven't done previously, or I, I haven't slept in, in days kind of thing, what you find is that the response is much, much more positive than, than you might expect. Very often you're knocking or pushing on a on a, a door that's wide open because people have either had the problem themselves or their wife has had the problem or their other mate has had the problem or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so the process of, of asking for help or, or kind of um, admitting that you're having a problem isn't as scary as you would think. Um, and it's also hugely powerful. So like you mentioned, um, there, are, there are very few advantages to mental health problems versus physical health problems like broken legs or whatever but one of them is that talking about it can be the first step in getting better um and it's definitely the most important step in in terms of getting better chatting to your friend about your broken leg will not make your broken leg fix quicker right but actually telling your friend that you need some help with your anxiety or with your depression can um move you along the, the kind of cure curve as it were so yes it's not it's it's incredibly important and it's not as scary as you would think um mm-hmm. certainly my, my experience was both professionally and personally uh all you have to do is ask people for help and, and very often they'll give it to you and do you know what Cassie? if you've got a friend who decides that you're a bit too much hard work because you've got a mental health problem then they're not your mate anyway get rid in a professional context if you've got some grumpy old boss who you know refuses to acknowledge that mental health problems are real do you really want to work for that person Probably not. So get on with it. (laughs) (laughs) I've had the boss that has been very open to it and happy to talk about it. And I've also had the boss that has made the anxiety seem like the problem to a situation where I'm just like, no, don't want to work for you. (laughs) See you later. I think you learn that a lot more as you, I guess, go down the journey a little bit. But at the beginning, I was very much mindful and I guess trying to please other people and kind of suppress some of the feelings that I actually felt and more so now I'm so comfortable in the fact I guess talking about it and understanding myself a lot more that I feel way more confident to say to somebody actually I don't think this is a good a very healthy relationship to be had probably were more a detriment to my mental health as opposed to positive Mm. and and you really do learn that as you come along that you do need to, again, without sounding cliche, 
have people around you that you do really have like bounce off and have positive energy with and really bring you up because it is very raw you do have good and bad days so you do need to have people that accept accept both and not always um the positive days because yeah there's some crap ones too <laughs> yeah I, I know I, I completely agree I think there is a thing and certainly I experienced this at the start of my problem and I know lots of other people have it where because if you if you have kind of a you know chronic or clinical um, anxiety or depressive condition, because it's the only thing in your head, you do tend to talk about. Once you get comfortable talking about it, you can end up talking about it a lot, mm-hmm. and you can end up sort of becoming a bit of a one trick pony in terms of, of you know sort of conversational cul de sac as it were. <laughs> and um, and so the way that I try to think about it now is it's a bit like if I had a physical health complaint. I don't know if I had. You know, say I had the shits or something, uh, you know, if it was really bad, I might tell my colleagues, <laughs> um, you know, that's why I'm not in work. But a lot of the time I probably wouldn't, or, you know, I would, I would, um, uh, you know, just kind of get on with it on my, on my own or with people who are a bit closer to me or whatever it is. So I, I think there is a balance between, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to tip over into sort of s- the snowflake zone where, mm. Oh my God, that's making my anxiety really bad. You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because you do hear quite a lot of that in offices. One of the things that are really interesting that you spoke about in the book as well is about social media and the reality versus the Instagram persona. And you spoke about <laughs> one of your friends at Pizza Express. And I feel like everybody has read that and can totally relate when there's someone in front of you that clearly not, is not having the best time. And on Instagram, they're like, living my best life. <laughs> it was horrific. Yeah, so this is a friend of mine who, um, who'd been dumped and we'd, I'd taken her out to Pizza Express to sort of cheer her up. Um, and she'd literally spent that entire time meal crying onto a uh, Polo Ad Astra or whatever it was. And then later that evening had uploaded a, um, a series of pictures of the dinner, kind of talking about how brilliant an evening she'd had. I mean, um, but it, and, and it just, it just struck me. It was one of those kind of light bulb moments where you realize, yeah, that so much of it's just complete guff. I mean, complete invention, fiction. If the, you know, if you're looking at influencers, uh, pages and stuff not not only is it all obviously staged but very often it's completely uh photoshopped and and you know um, face tuned and all the rest of it mm-hmm. and um the data is just so conclusive on social media that the more you look at it the more uh the, the more uh depressed you are the more anxious you are the higher your levels of uh, envy and the lower your levels of self-confidence mm-hmm. and um you know, if you were doing, if there was, you know, I don't know, if you were taking a drug that gave you all of those outcomes and you were doing it for about two hours a day, mm. people would probably tell you to chill out on it, you know, or you would get some help or you would realize that you had a bit of a problem with social media. It, it you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it goes unchecked. And my, my own relationship with it is quite complicated because it's become part of my job now a bit. Mm. I'm terrible at it. I was going to say, how do you um, find that now that you have to incorporate it into? I mean, you've, if you've seen my Instagram, you'll realize like I'm no good at it. <laughs> but, and actually it has given me an appreciation for people who are. Mm. You know, people think that being an influencer character, vapid um, <laughs> as it is, um, it, it is actually much harder work than you would think trying to think of things to post every day. I bet, and the um, hashtags. <laughs> oh, the hashtags. But so um, what do I do? I tend to, if I have something that I want to upload or something, I will do it and then delete the app. 
or have you gone through phases of using the apps like moment and things like that, which will kind of help you monitor your, your intake. But pe- you know, pe- pe- people piss and moan about social media's negative, negative impacts and then crack on and do it anyway. Mm. And you kind of have to make a decision. Okay. Am I going to be someone who moans about how bad it is, but you know, continue to scroll in the bed you know, <laughs> or am I going to be someone who recognizes how bad it is and then take some action to try and reduce or manage how much you're using it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really addictive. I find social media is that I, I actually deleted it for a couple of months and found that I had spent so much time that instead I was using that time to, um, and then turn to Duolingo. Cause I was just like, what do I do on the commute? And I wanted to read, but as you know, from Thames links, you can't really do anything. Um, yeah, yeah. And it is really, I find that I'm one of those people that are slightly sensitive to that. So there's a lot of advice that they say about, um, I guess, revamping and changing who you do follow to have that, I guess, similar to how you would surround yourself day to day with people that would impact you positively. And there are some good parts to do with building a community of people that do follow parts, but you do have to, I guess, take everything with a pinch of salt. I, I agree. I agree. I agree with you. But, um, and definitely in the sphere of mental health, there are, there is a huge online community that can be really, really helpful and that you can connect with through things like Instagram and Twitter. But I just think it's worth, and you mentioned it's addictive. Yeah, it, it is. That's the whole, that's the whole way that it's engineered and designed is, mm. is, is to ensure that it's addictive. If you've ever found yourself closing Instagram and then opening re, like without mindlessly reopening it in the same mm-hmm. second and scrolling and then closing it and scrolling it, you know, that, that, that's kind of how it's designed. But I, I don't know, I just, people, my, my attitude to it is that lots of people moan about how terrible it is, but then continue to do it. Mm-hmm. And lots of, lots of people will lie to themselves. I do the same thing, you know, so I, I, I thought, well, it's a bit drastic to get rid of it. So I'll just change the people I follow. I'll get rid of all the people with six packs <laughs> and I'll just have all the sort of joke accounts because I find them quite funny. And then I'll have the architecture accounts because I like you know, grand designs and TV shows like that. And what I very quickly found was I was looking at these amazing houses in Los Angeles going, why don't I have one of those? <laughs> so <laughs> so, so then you get rid of them. And, and then you, I know, but then even following the sort of, you know, comedians accounts, I'm like, oh, why, why can't I think of jokes that funny? So I, it's just, for me at least, um, it's not good. Not, it's not a good thing to be uh, doing for hours and hours on end, you know? I think you're funny. I'll never forget at the end of the day. Oh, thanks, Kirsty. <laughs> Do you know what I've kept in my mind always made me laugh is when it came to half past and you go with David, <laughs> 10, 9, oh, yeah, 8. Yeah. The, ca- the countdown. The countdown, the countdown for the t- weekend. At the, at, at the end of the day. <laughs> well, it got earlier and earlier and earlier. So I used to do it at 5, 529 <laughs> or whatever it was. And then, and then by, the, by the end of my time uh, working at the company, I was doing it at sort of 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> the boss is telling me, why are you doing the countdown? <laughs> It's like I need, I need it to be done now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's enough of that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. You end up following new accounts, but there's still that you can't help but compare yourself, and it's it's the hardest Definitely. thing that you you do try to. But it's such a human thing to do is to to naturally compare yourself to other things that you see around you. Well, it, it, you're absolutely right. It's a natural human thing to compare yourself to other people. It's unnatural to spend dedicate two hours a day to doing that yeah um you know when you're sitting on the loo or lying in bed or you know on the train or whatever mm-hmm. so um 
yeah, I don't know. That, though, I, I have a weird relationship with social media, but I think lots of people probably do. Yeah, I think that's such a good way of looking at it is that it's a human thing to compare yourself, but it's not a natural thing to be, I guess, like you said. And you do look at your phone and you think, oh my gosh, I've actually been on this for so long. So I've tried to now more so especially during this the next few weeks is be less connected to my phone and and actually just embracing what's around that might last a couple of weeks and I'll be back to my phone again (laughs) but the intention's there to just to cut it away and another thing you mentioned as well is about alcohol which I think is one of the things that during lockdown has gone up and similar (laughs) to yourself I think a lot of people mention about anxiety. I am mm. the worst person. I can live for the night and the next day it's completely taken the happiness. So I've, I've reduced it totally. And I know actually when we were working together, I think we mentioned it at the pub that time because I was saying oh, I'm not really drinking as much because I do find that it is, there was that mentality when I first joined media is keeping up with everybody else. Or just working yes. in London, not necessarily media. And it's now been quite refreshing that there's been that removal of that stigma and a lot of the younger generation are less likely to be out sort of binge drinking and they're very much in tune with the whole sobriety movement um it's definitely helped with my mindset because I would spend the next day worrying thinking oh gosh did I say this what did I try and put things together it's the worst thing ever and you just Mm -hmm. in bed just like with your your mind but what are some things that you found from your own experience because I know that you speak about it in the book that you found that reducing alcohol some people might cut out completely but reducing has had has been a positive impact for you that you'd recommend to others that may be thinking about definitely during this time yeah so 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 that the, the the again a bit like social media the evidence um uh, regarding alcohol's relationship with mental health is so conclusive mm. the the more we booze and the more consistently we booze uh, the more unhappy, anxious, and depressed we are. And there are a few reasons why. So the first is to do with brain chemistry. Um, people always think about booze as being either a stimulant or a depressant. So you'll hear them say things like, um, you know, gin is a, is, a, is a depressing drink. It's, you know, brings your mood down, whereas champagne or uh, tequila is a kind of party drink that will make mm-hmm. you feel happy. And the reality is that all alcohol, all ethanol is both a stimulant and a depressant. And what that means is when you drink, you get stimulation in the brain with things like dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins, which are all the kind of happy reward chemicals in the brain. But at the same time, it also slows and impairs the function of other neurotransmitters, which is why, for example, you slur when you're pissed or you're you stumble when you're drunk because your brain is functioning much worse. <clears throat> and, and what those opposing forces, the stimulation and the depressant mean is that your brain chemistry is imbalanced. And that's one of the reasons why anxiety, as you describe it, even if you don't have a clinical anxiety disorder, um, you might wake up the morning after a big night on the piss and feel, um, you know, and, and feel nervous. It's also really bad news for our sleep. So you fall asleep quicker when you're pissed, but you wake up much more throughout the night and the quality of the sleep you, you enjoy is less of the good stuff. It's less, um, you know, restorative, um, rapid eye movement sleep and much thinner, much more brittle sleep. And so you put all this together and, you know, the brain chemistry, the effects on sleep, uh, the effects on things like weight gain and um, skin and all the rest of it. <clears throat> and it's a pretty 
pretty potent uh, um, thing to be doing when it comes to mental health. I stopped drinking completely for about six months. So I was teetotal for six months. <clears throat> and then when that became unsustainable <laughs> due to the quantity of weddings that I was attending, um, I started to slowly reintroduce alcohol into my life. And the way that I have now is I do drink. <clears throat> I try not to drink Monday through Friday. Um, and then on the weekends, I try never to get a hangover. So I try not to drink to the stage where I might end up getting a hangover. And I get that wrong the whole time, but I find that having a, a sort of North Star, as, as it were, a goal in mind helps you to be aware of how much you're drinking. Mm-hmm. The one thing I would say, and I say this about alcohol, exercise, CBT to a certain extent, is not, it's really important when, not to become obsessive about these things. So, you know, uh, and certainly that's how I was for, for about, you know, for that first year, maybe 18 months, I was obsessed with finding the one thing that was causing my condition. So is it a lack of exercise? Okay, in which case I'm going to exercise every single day and I'm going to do that. Is it alcohol? Okay, in which case I'm going completely teetotal. And, and what you end up doing is developing a whole bunch of weird sort of rituals, mm. um, compulsions, as it were, uh, by which you live your life. And that's when you cross over into having a different kind of problem you have an obsessive compulsive problem mm-hmm. um so i would definitely encourage listeners to at least reflect on how much they drink and maybe to you know set some goals or some rules around it but try never to become obsessive you know you know you, you, I, at one stage i was you know i was teeth i'm not an alcoholic so I, you know i never had problem with not drinking but um i would find myself you know in restaurants asking if there was any booze in the in the crepe Suzette or whatever it was, because, you know, I didn't want to have any alcohol because that will cause the problem to come back. Mm. Of course, that's not the case. It is true that you see a positive, so you think, oh gosh, if mm. I go back, it's going to revert it. Um, I do agree that you have to, I guess you, you have to also assess what your lifestyle is like. I think if you restrict yourself and you do go one way completely, you have to also appreciate that life isn't always going to be how it currently is. Like you said, you're going to have weddings, you're going to have celebrations that do come up and you just need to, yeah, embrace life how it is in front of you. And if you do, do I, I completely agree. Fine. Yeah. And also, you know, don't mourn for how things used to be. That's the other thing. You know, I, yeah. I'm not, a person who's capable now of um, of getting trashed in the way I did in my twenties, and you know, if you you could get down in the dumps about that, because there are some people who still can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just life moves on. It's funny it, um, in my in my family. So I have two two older brothers and obviously a mum and a dad, and we were very much one of those families. I would say ten years ago or something, who were you know constantly getting pissed together, and Christmas was a sort of big old booze up and stuff. And slowly, pretty much one by one, <clears throat> each of us has come to a realization that alcohol, you know, is pretty bad news for our weight or for our mental health or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, there may be a bottle of wine on the table at Christmas, but like it's pretty abstemious. And we, you can kind of mourn those days of us all getting terrifically drunk together on a Friday night, or you can just accept, you know, things have moved on, it's changed. Mm-hmm. There are other th- other positives that have come out of it. Um, it's, that's, that's a process I'm still going through, actually, because I still sometimes I think, oh, I'd love to be able to go out and sink, you know, 10 pints and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But I just can't, I'm just not, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> one of those things I can't do. I'm the same. I think that um, there's a part of me that 
looks back at those times like oh my gosh like I was so I guess more of like a heavyweight now I just have like a drink and I'm gone so I'm very happy that that tolerance has been impacted because it is the part that like you said you in in life you have like different chapters and at this stage you're like it's good that that's then and now I've grown and now I can appreciate the person as well that I am now from those experiences um Mm. The, the only thing, the, one of the things I, I would say from the period of of, like, tot- of being teetotal was it also realizes, made me realize how big of an impact even low level drinking can have on the way you feel in the morning. Mm-hmm. So even if you have even two beers or something makes it much harder to get up in the morning than yeah. having zero, zero beers. And once you stop for a period of time, you realize how great you feel. And no one wants to hear about a teetotaler telling everyone how great they feel. <laughs> um, but you do, you know, you, you like your, your sort of resting place is uh, much, much more, you know, you just feel much more alive and stuff. That is so true. Your mornings turn into less of laying around in bed. You're like up in the morning, you've done your morning yeah. run and you don't want to be, like you said, that person that says, oh, I'm going to go for like a morning run. Like, see you guys later whilst everyone else is having their like, I don't know, dominoes at whatever time in the morning. But um, I think as well, um, you mentioned a lot around um, the the different things that you've done in terms of to help with your recovery. I think the most important thing that always comes back is about talking about things. But for people that might be at the beginning of that journey and thinking, how does how does it get to that stage where I can just talk about and understand that? Um, yeah. So, so like we said, uh, like I was saying a, a, a little while ago, for, for my, my experience was it was so bad, I didn't really have an option not to. It was obvious that something was, was pear-shaped with me. So for people who maybe still don't feel comfortable, I, I would definitely reiterate that point that you know, the prevalence of these problems means that when you do ask for help, you'll, you'll very likely be pushing on an open door. P- people often ask me about um, how they can help their friends to get help for example. Mm. So they will say to me, oh, I feel like my friend or my boyfriend or my girlfriend has a problem and they're, they're uncomfortable to talk to me about it or they won't get help or whatever. What, what can I do? And it is tricky because, you know, ultimately you can't force someone to, you know, go and see a therapist or whatever it is. One of the things I always suggest though is, to, is the, <laughs> I'm still not quite sure why this works, but it does, is to get people to see a doctor in the first instance. So if you've got a friend or, you know, a loved one or whatever, who you think has a problem, uh, is to get them to see a doctor rather than to go and see a therapist or a counsellor or whatever. And there's just something about the, you know, as human beings, we love people in, in positions of authority with white coats and stethoscopes or whatever. And when a doctor tells someone, oh, yeah, you have a clinical problem that is, you know, definable and has existed for yonks and that there are treatment plans for and stuff, that's very often the start to get someone to actually accept that a they have a problem that you can sort of work at, and then also to actually start them start them doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I think not so much for our generation, but maybe for older people, there is a awareness of of what constitutes a mental health problem, or uh, awareness of you know what you can get help for. It, it, you know, isn't that high? So if I look in my parents' generation, I think you know, loads of people in their friendship group would have what we would now consider to be mental health problems, but that's just always how they've been. So they've never kind of got help for it and recognized mm. it as a problem and realized that they can get help for it. Um, I think that's changing now um, because of all of the sort of um, 
the publicity and the, the kind of speed at which the public conversation is moving. But yes, yeah, so coming back to your question, I, I would uh, feel comfortable that if you if you do want to talk to someone about it, that you'll likely find that they're an ally. And my experience is across four years of talking really openly about this, I've never had a single person, at least to my face, uh, say anything other than, you know, lovely things. And also, you know, if you, if you really are struggling to work out if what's in your head is a problem that you can fix, go and see a doctor and see what they say. Um, they're getting much, much better at it. I think it's so true what you're saying about the clinical side and having that confirmation. I think whenever I've been in a bad way, it doesn't matter. Sadly, no matter what my fiance does to try and help me, it's it always once a doctor says and confirms something in my head, I'm like, okay, it's all okay now. <laughs> yeah, it's a real, it's a real thing that I can get help for. And, and that really is the thing, you know, when you first have one of these problems, you think that you're the first person on earth to have experienced, you know, these problems. And then you go and talk to mm. someone who sees people every day who have the exact same problem, the exact same thoughts as in the words in their heads are the same as the ones in yours. And you realize, oh, okay, I have, I have an issue. I have a problem here but there is a plan and there are people who've had this problem and then got better Mm -hmm. and it all becomes much less scary. It does. I found it actually quite comforting, although it's really sad that other people have experienced the same thing. But when the doctor said to me, Oh, don't worry. Loads of people feel this way. Like like you said, word for word, have said the exact same thing. And it's such a, you you can just take a breath and you're like, Oh my gosh, other people are feeling the same way. And, exactly. and it's really nice to know that you're not alone in that feeling as well. I completely agree. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned as well is about work. So work is one of those, um, it definitely has changed even from where we, we met at work is that they've talked around um, wellness and mental health in a, in a different way. And it's, it's really nice to see that there is that change happening um you also mentioned that you speak at other businesses um Mm. about um managing mental health at work and wellness what are some of the key takeaways that have been simple yet practical for businesses to help especially now with the new way of working um with helping their employees and also probably their own teams um with um, mental health at work yeah so i think you're absolutely right to say that uh, companies have changed their way of thinking about mental health you know, drastically in even just the last two or three years. Mm. Um, and, you know, they don't always get it right. Often it's a bit clumsy. Um, often it's quite, you know, lots of talk and not a huge amount of action. But I'm, I'm generally optimistic about the way that businesses are starting to deal with, with mental health. And in a way, it's not surprising. You know, if, if you've got 25% of your workforce at any one time, suffering with a problem that makes them uh, you know let's be honest less productive mm. then that's that's definitely a you know an, an issue worth trying to fix you know and also businesses lots of businesses um uh as they open up more broadly you start to discover that people in very senior positions have had these problems and therefore you know they're keen to implement change as much as as people who are maybe a bit more junior generally speaking the companies that do really well on mental health are the ones who focus on prevention rather than on cure. So um, what do I mean by that? Well, when a focus on cure would be having um, meditation rooms. Actually, well, not necessarily. It would be having CBT therapists on site, would be providing free counselling to people when they do have a problem. 
uh, and those sorts of things, which sound, and they are like, they are positive. Um, but you'll be much better off rather than trying to fix people once you've sort of pushed them off a cliff, you'd be much better just to not push them off the cliff in the first place. Yeah. And so that is about focusing on prevention. There's loads of different things you can do. Uh, I think providing people with flexibility about how they work is a huge one. So um, you know, people who are allowed to set their own schedules or have a degree of flexibility in setting their schedules tend to report having a greater sense of purpose at work which is hugely important for mental health. Um, then there are really practical things like, you know, turning off emails servers after a certain point or having a company-wide service level agreement that it's okay to reply to, you know, you have to reply to an email within three hours, but not within 20 minutes. You know, mm-hmm. So people can set up their day so that they're not constantly worrying about things. Having annual leave and sticking to it. Um, you know, one of the things that people talked about for a while was the idea of unlimited holiday. And would that help with people's mental health or would it make it worse? And actually what you saw was people ended up taking less holiday because, because it wasn't given to them as a right. It was up to them to decide. There became all sorts of politics about how you, much you take and when you take it and stuff. Um, so set holiday allowances and make sure that people, people take them. Um, and then try to encourage, like we've discussed uh, a lot today, you know, the most important thing when you have one of these problems is to come forward and to ask for help as quickly as possible. And mm-hmm. so to foster a culture internally where people feel able to ask for help at the start of them having a problem rather than having to wait until it becomes really, really bad is also a very important thing. It's kind of a nebulous thing. How do you, you know, how do you create a culture of openness and and authenticity um i think the best way to do that and again the companies that i speak at who i think are really killing it when it comes to mental health are the ones where people in senior positions have come forward and said i've had this problem myself or my son has been having this problem or whatever it is because the trickle down effect of making it okay to talk about this thing these things Mm. um, is really really powerful so a few things really um but but again what i would say just underline for for you know, for folks who have these problems is even in blokey industries and I've worked in, you know, I've worked in in sales all my life, which can be quite aggressive, kind of quite masculine environments. I've never had anyone say anything disparaging about the fact that I've, you know, been chatty about my mental health. So, yeah. People are more open to it than we realise, as we've discussed. And I think that, like you said, finding a prevention as opposed to a cure is something really important because sometimes businesses do have an impact on someone's mental health and then later try and find the cure for that when actually doing simple things like you said like annual leave and turning off emails emails are the worst and I think the two work hand in hand sometimes that when you're on annual leave you feel that you're constantly looking at your emails um so I totally agree with you with regards to men and mental health do you Mm. think there is a change that is happening and what do you think still needs to be done to help encourage these steps for men to approach talking through mental health so for example you speak about humor and normalizing it um yeah do you think there is a change that is currently happening in this space i hope so i'm optimistic um i think and this is something that's um stephen fry talks about in the in the forward to the book which is how social change tends to go in various different waves and we've kind of had the first wave which is 
lots of male celebrities and sort of people in the public eye talking about their mental health. Prince William, Stephen Fry, um, John Hamm, you know, pretty much pick your, pick your celeb. Um, and then you kind of hope for a second wave, which is, you know, more normal, normal people, um, mm. people, normal people in positions of privilege like myself. Uh, but, you know, you need people like, you know, me and you and, you know, normal sort of folks to start talking about these issues openly. And then eventually you get the third wave, which is, you know, people who aren't necessarily, you know, white, middle class, heterosexual, living in London, university educated, whatever you are, can also start, they also start talking about it. And then, and then it's kind of an established social change and change the culture. So we definitely had the first wave. I think we're in the middle of the second wave. Uh, if we weren't, uh, we probably wouldn't be chatting and I definitely wouldn't have a book deal and things like that. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm optimistic that um, things will keep moving. One of the very few benefits or upsides of this miserable pandemic, I think, has been the focus that it has put onto mental health and people who up until now have been quite maybe cynical, maybe scathing of, you know, the real extent to which mental health is, a, is, a, is an actual thing that's worth working at. I think they, those people have come to realise, you know, from being stuck at home for months on end, just how real mental health is and how, how important it is to manage. So I'm hopeful of change. H how do we go about encouraging blokes in particular? Because you're right to say we do have a very peculiar ch gendered challenge with mental health, which is, you know, women are much more likely to have one of these problems, but for some reason, men are much, much more likely to end up killing themselves. Um, so why is that? Well, it must be, and I discussed this at length in the book, I spent ages thinking about it, it must be the communication thing. So whereas women feel more comfortable to ask for help and therefore, you know, get better, um, blokes, blokes don't. Why is that the case? Well, there's a long historical precedent. So even, I mean, if you go way, way back, you know, for really up until the sort of 19th, 20th century, mental health problems were considered to be solely the preserve of women. So, uh, you know, humoral medicine, various different um, um, approaches to medicine considered mental health to be intrinsically linked to the uterus <laughs> and movements in the uterus. It was, it was assumed that the uterus was a kind of animal within an animal as had, has referred to and that movements in the uterus could make you depressed. Melancholia could make you anxious, hysteria, kind of the old, old, oldie worldy names. And as a result of that, um, not to say that women have had an easy time of history, but one of the upshots of that is that there is a precedent over the course of a thousand or more years of women being able to talk about having these problems. Whereas for men, really until Freud, it wasn't possible. We don't have uteruses, uteri. Therefore, it is not, poss it's not physically possible for us to have a mental health problem. So there's really no precedent for us talking about it. Thankfully, I think that's changing, obviously. Uh, we now come to accept that anyone can have one of these problems. Um, uh, but it will just take a bit of time, I think. And I'm, I'm always, always really keen to avoid a, the blame game with this. Lots of people will say, oh, bloody men, you know, why can't they just open up? Why can't they? Well, you know what? Actually, if you had 2,000 plus years of history and social convention preventing you from doing something, you know, maybe you'd think a bit more lightly about it. Mm. So, yeah, in short, I'm hopeful it's not our fault.
but I do think things will get better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, last part, you, you asked how to engage. I've, I mean, beats me, but one of the things that I try to do throughout the book and you know, speaking and whatnot is you have to try and be funny and normal about it. It's a thing that happens. It's like having hay fever or eczema or whatever. And if you can make a joke out of it or if you can you know, see the positive in it, I, I think that's a, a good way to go about engaging blokes it's nice to have a book that has has both aspects to that and i think it will help a lot of people um so oh, yeah so thank you for that um during this moment in time i know that we've mentioned a lot about how um anxiety is heightened um and i guess through um this time i know myself personally i've experienced anxiety a lot more so a lot more panic attacks more often than i usually would um what are some things that you found helpful during this time i know that you've posted it on your um platform with how to manage anxiety yeah so there's lots of things i would say um definitely i have been doubling down on all the things that i know help so the cbt like we mentioned i've been trying to practice that uh booze I've been trying to be really mindful of how much I drink. Um, alcohol sales increased by 30% in March. Wow. Uh, no, sorry, in, in April, um, which is, I think, testament to the fact that lots of people are at, at home, you know, having a beer or whatever. Which yeah. is fair enough, but try, try to be mindful of it. Exercise. Uh, we haven't talked that much about exercise, but exercise is fantastic for your brain chemistry you get all of the serotonin endorphins dopamine but with none of the downsides really good for sleep and it's also something that you can do it's a kind of um something in the plus column you know it's a kind of lever a way of regaining some control over thoughts in the head um so i've been doing exercise as much as possible uh, i have to confess i'm getting so bored of running um, <laughs> so that sort of stuff i think th- on the day-to-day, one of the other things I would recommend is, is routine. And there was lots of talk about this at the start of lockdown and stuff and start of working from home. People, people would bang on about the importance of routine. But, you know, I think lots of people three months down the line have either, you know, fallen into a bad routine or kind of abandoned having routine in general. It's really important to have a routine and a number of reasons why. But primarily, um, the... the the evidence linking a sense of achievement and purpose in life and your mental well-being is is really tight and really really um uh sort of settled the more you feel that you're achieving the, the happier you tend to be and one of the easiest ways to feel like you're achieving things is to make a list of stuff to do and then get on and, and do it and that's where kind of routine comes in that doesn't have to be um it doesn't have to be you know a mark Wahlberg style you know, get up at 3am and all the rest of it. Uh, but I would, I would recommend focusing on the morning. We have our lowest blood sugar levels in the morning and we have our highest levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone in the morning, which is why pe- lots of people tend to be grumpy in the mornings. So, you know, focus your routine on the morning so you kind of get up and counteract those, those forces. Um, and also the other thing I would say is plan to waste time. So, you know, across the course of a day, even if you're busy at work, you're gonna, there's going to be moments where you are reading a newspaper, making a cup of tea, scrolling on BBC News or reading Instagram or whatever it might be. And, and procrastination in itself isn't bad. It's only bad if it results in you feeling guilty or kind of gives you bad feelings or whatever. So if you plan into your routine to waste time, 
mm. um, then it will, you know, you, it will prevent you from having the kind of guilt or the, you know, um, self hatred that might come with wasting time. <laughs> so yeah, all the stuff like CBT, alcohol, booze, uh, and, um, and routine. And then finally, as always, talk to people. You know, if you're feeling low, if you're struggling to sleep, if you or whatever it might be, pick up the phone and chat to a mate or call your parents or whatever, you know, don't, don't, um, don't suffer in silence. The most important part that you touched upon about connecting with people is I found that now more than ever, I'm having a lot more FaceTimes with people that I hadn't had before. Like, I think we're so quick to in the normal way of or what was the way of working is that everyone is so quick and like moves around mm. doesn't really have that much time you're always like oh I'm actually busy Monday to Sunday let's do week commencing and you just throw out a date that is so far in advance um, and I think it's really changed like we've made more time for relationships we've made more time like you said exercise exercise is so important and that's kind of been part of my routine is every morning I'll start with a bit of exercise even if it's just just stretching or just moving about is just helping so much with like you said the mindset and that's really interesting about um the sugar blood levels that you mentioned that yeah that that's why we are so grumpy that's well I live for the day my partner lives for the night <laughs> so <laughs> He hates the warnings. Um, but I think that is so important to, like you said, take those tips on board and to, to try and practice those because routine is so important. And I've realized even more so during this time, maintaining that does make such a difference. Um, I think the final thing, I know I've picked your brain now for over an hour, <laughs> um, but if you had one piece of advice you'd recommend to someone beginning their recovery journey, what would it be after looking back over your progress? Yeah, really simple. Um, it, and I actually, this is uh, the phrase that I used to end the book is the idea that it, it always gets better. So, and, and what is so tricky with mental health is when you're at your lowest, you don't think it will get better. You think that, that will be your life forever. And it's impossible to foresee a circumstance where you are able to sleep again or go to a party again or enjoy a glass of wine normally again mm. or, or whatever. And the fact that I'm still hanging around, um, droning on uh, is testament to the fact that it always gets better and it may at some point get worse and it may get really bad, but at some point, you know, the, uh, the clouds clear, the storm breaks, the day rises, and uh, it's always worth hanging around to experience that sensation because there's nothing like not having the problem, is what mm -hmm. I'd say. So true that there will, there will be days where you feel that, yeah, it's not going to get better, but it always does. And you're a real testament of that, Josh. And I think your book is amazing how you articulate that. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. So, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank I really you. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's Tea and Toast podcast. If you want to share any feedback or ask any questions, don't forget to follow, like and share via Instagram at Tea and Toast the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe.